Ready to go? Scroll, 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 scroll. Okay. That's basically what Marvel's going to be doing for the next 10 years. Scroll, scroll, scroll. <laughs> scroll, scroll, scroll. I still need to watch Ant-Man, dude. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocklip. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing another movie swap. I watched Cabaret for the first time. And Amanda, what did you watch? I watched Singing in the Rain. It's How musical fun. March. Yeah, we had a great time uh, this month watching a couple of musicals that we hadn't seen. But before we get to these two, honestly, indelible classics. Um, yeah. Amanda, how are you doing? What have you been watching? I'm doing good, doing some early birthday celebrating. Um, got to go to uh, my favorite music festival, M3F, with some friends who were in town. Saw our lovely Maggie Rogers. We both got to see her recently. Had a blast. Um, and uh, doing good. Just uh, enjoying a wrap-up of 27 years. Also, our 27th episode. Very wow. fun time. We love poetic beauty. <laughs> it's great. So some of the movies I've been watching, I finally watched AI, Artificial Intelligence. The movie is pretty wacky, um, but it's extraordinarily Spielberg. It has so much heart to it, but it is also very chromatic and <laughs> kind of silly. But, you know, whatever. I had a good time. I like Jude Law in the second half. It's a little confusing. <laughs> One that was on my I'm going to watch it next list in our last episode I actually watched in time for this episode. So I watched uh, Oscar winner Slumdog Millionaire. It's great. It's so good. Yeah. Shout out to Deb Patel. Some of the editing is a little dated, but in general, it's just like a great story. It's well acted. It's extremely uh, moving and fast paced. And I really enjoyed it. How are you? What have you been up to? What have you been watching? I'm good. You know, it's March Madness. Or March Sadness, depending on which or both uh, months you subscribe to. I also went to go see Miss Maggie Rogers. I went to her concert in San Diego. We did talk about this on our Oscar preview pod, but she's worth mentioning every single time we get a chance to. And I was lucky enough to be on the barricade, so I was about 10 to 15 feet away from her. And just truly a special experience. But as far as the movies, um, you know what? Another special experience is watching and learning about Doris Day and Rock Hudson uh, 60s sex comedies. So I watched Pillow Talk last month. And if you've watched that whenever, uh, since I mentioned it in one of our past pods, watch Lover Come Back. It's basically the same thing. And you know what? It's beautiful. Just really making that Technicolor pop, uh, which we will get to in our movie swap today. Another movie that is furthest thing from that is Gattaca, which is the Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, Uma Thurman vehicle. The 90s were a time and uh, 90s utopian sci-fi is odd and it's melodramatic but you know what it was worth watching and i'm glad i watched it and then lastly uh a movie i watched ahead of the oscars was in bruges which is the first collaboration between colin farrell brendan gleason and martin mcdonough um i think it's 2008 or 2009 i think i liked it better than banshees but it's definitely a movie made by younger a younger director and writer uh, with younger performers uh, it's very intense and it's very flagrant in certain ways, but it's also funnier and it's not as contained. So if you think Banshees is a little bit lacking for some reason, um, check out In Bruges. So that's the movies we've been watching, but let's talk about the movies we were swapping. We decided 
to do some musicals because we love alliteration here. Although this is a podcast where we don't shame each other for not watching certain movies, it's a little shocking that both of us had not seen either of these movies that we've swapped. Cabaret is considered one of the greatest musicals of all time and won a boatload of Oscars, and Singing in the Rain is one of the greatest American films ever made. So, um, Amanda, do you have anything else to add in terms of why we swapped these movies? It's pretty straightforward, I think. Let's get into it then. Let's why why waste any more time? We have a lot to talk yeah. about. We both have a lot of notes. So why don't you flip the coin and I'm gonna pick heads. It is tails, and we are starting with singing in the rain. Yeah, we are. All right. Amanda, do you know what they say about me? Can't act, can't sing, can't dance. A triple threat. You watched Singing in the Rain. (laughs) I did. Why don't you tell us what happened in the film? All right. Don Lockhart, played by Gene Kelly, and Lena Lamont, played by Gene Hagen, are top-of-the-line movie stars in the silent films. Don has been coming up from rags to riches, though that is not the story of his life that he's been selling, with his best friend, Cosmo Brown, played by Donald O'Connor. One night after a premiere, Don meets Kathy Selden, Debbie Reynolds' character, a stage actress who says she is essentially a better actor than Don because she actually has to say lines. Uh, later at a party, she hops out of a cake as a for-hire entertainment at a party that Don, Cosmo, and Lena are all at. It's very embarrassing for Kathy, but it's very silly. This is when Lena starts to pick up on the fact that maybe Don is sweet on Kathy, despite her and the tabloids all believing that Don and Lena are meant to be together. At this same party, someone shows the room a talkie. While others insist that it'll never catch on, Cosmo is smart to notice that they should get ahead of it and join in on that. One problem, Lena has the worst nasaliest voice, but Lena and Don are sort of a combo. Don insults Kathy, Kathy hits Lena with a pie that's meant for Don, and they all run off. This brings us to weeks later, Don is really trying to track down Kathy, especially as they try to figure out what to do about Lena and wanting to have musical numbers in their next big film. The movie producer, R.F. Simpson, pulls Kathy aside at a different production with the influence from Cosmo, and they all concoct a plan to have Kathy essentially dub over Lena's lines and songs in the movie since she has a beautiful voice. Just Lena can't know because she is a diva and she hates Kathy for taking Don and for hitting her with a pie. Kathy and Don continue to fall in love as the crew produces the film and all of the musical numbers that go in it. Essentially, Lena, toward the end, gets hot on the whole thing. She throws a fit, she goes to the media, and threatens R.F. Simpson into signing a contract that only lets Kathy act as a dub for her work, not as Kathy's own actress. The movie is a hit, but when the crowd wants Lena to give a speech and sing a song at the end, there's a curveball in their plan. So Kathy goes behind the curtain, dubs again, and Cosmo, Don, and R.F. pull the curtain to reveal that Kathy is the real star. She gets to be in the movie, and they live happily ever after. That's pretty much the whole movie. Yeah, it is. What a joy. <laughs> As I was writing it, I was like, it surely can't be this simple. And I was like, no, it really was this simple, but like in a good way. So, I mean, this seems silly, but Zach, why did you choose this movie? Other than the fact that uh, I love this movie, I guess maybe before that, it's one of the greatest American films of all time. 
perhaps the greatest American-made musical of all time. It's number 5 on the AFI 100, number 10 on the most recent Sight and Sound poll. And personally, it's the first musical I loved. So um, there's a lot of close to the heart and historical context that gives good reason to watch this movie. And it's just like confounding that I had never seen it. Yeah, that gets to my first question um, before we get to first impressions. How did you miss this movie? I don't know. It just it wasn't a movie that I watched growing up for some reason. Um, and then it sort of felt maybe like daunting. I don't know. I'm not there is no reason. That's also the hard part is there wasn't like oh, I was avoiding this movie. I just like had never put it on. There's a lot of content to watch. <laughs> there is a lot of content to watch. And that's why we have this podcast. So with that in mind, why don't you tell me what were your first watch impressions? What stood out to you? I was really curious, like, how this all came together. The movie doesn't really have a plot. Did they just, like, want to sing? Um, and basically, that's the answer. So writers Adolph Green and Betty Comden discovered that MGM had a cachet, basically, of wonderful and unused songs featured in the studio's films from the early sound era. And this inspired them to use them as the basis of a screenplay about the trials and tribulations endured by the people of the film industry when sound was introduced, a process that made plenty of new stars while destroying many established ones. Have you ever watched the movie Babylon? Oh, it Christ. Is... <laughs> I'm going to talk about Babylon only one more time, I promise. So the songs came first um, and the plot came second, basically, which felt like it while you're watching the film as well. Another thing that really stood out is that I knew so many of the songs, which kind of goes to that same point. So I already knew like almost all the words to make them laugh, good morning, and singing in the rain, of course. So it was like returning to familiar favorites despite never having seen the movie. These songs are bangers. I'm glad that you finally got to see them in context. Another thing that I thought a lot about was make them laugh. Of course, the gymnastics and the dance of it all is so famous. And I've seen it as a clip. I've seen others parody it. I've seen others do the whole thing. You know, it's just in our culture. But it is like really phenomenal to watch it in context. And even though this scene I've seen probably a hundred times, watching it like as it's happening was was still able to like blow me away that it was going on. There were moments like when he does the flips running up the wall, I literally was like, oh my God, <laughs> even though I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> to the point of the flips, um, that's something Donald O'Connor was known to do like when he was like a teenager. And so Gene Kelly was like, hey, can you do this in the movie? But at this point, Donald O'Connor was smoking like four packs a day. Classic. When they recorded this, he was bedridden for a few days afterward and then they had to re-record it. Uh, who among us hasn't felt the effects of aging? Um, but I will say, Make Him Laugh is probably the first movie scene I remember loving before my older siblings showed me this movie just in general. Um, they kind of brought it to me in parts and obviously being like what, however old I was, four or five, loved it because it's uh, one of those scenes and performances that appeals to kids but also really is impressive um, when you're watching it as an adult and um, really shows off what make Donald O'Connor like an icon. The next thing that like really stood out to me kind of go hand in hand is that I've obviously been watching movies in color my entire life, but there is just like nothing like the original Technicolor. It is so stunning. 
and so stark and like every single scene is like a painting Mm -hmm. it's it's just like a series of the most beautiful flip book pages you've ever seen especially the the dream sequence toward the end but with um gene kelly and it's like that pink and purple background with a woman in the white dress it is so beautiful and just very clearly like inspired a lot of things of course that's like the most obvious thing to say but that like really stuck with me from the very very beginning i was like wow they really just like boobies just like don't look like this yeah i mean technicolor bangs if like uh the bl- so blue eyes good. in technicolor look unreal um the yellows really pop it makes white people look great like you know <laughs> Yeah, that, um, that's true. That, that's true. <laughs> um, I think also it's a beautifully shot film. It's so artistic. Yeah, and it's really dynamic in the musical numbers. The thing that Gene Kelly really harped on um, when he was helping direct this movie was how is he supposed to move the camera? Because, you know, to this point, if you watch like a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers musical, it's it's pretty uh, stationary, uh, the camera. And Gene Kelly was like, when I perform, it's feeling very flat. And how do I capture some more dynamism in it? And so, you know, the way that these numbers are shot, even though now it seems kind of tame. And when we start talking about cabaret, it seems very tame. The way that uh, it captures the dancing and like uh, the singing and the and the real dynamism from all the performers in this, um, it was really not revolutionary, but like revelatory and captured like especially Gene Kelly's athleticism, which I thought was good. That like stood out to me a lot was how much the camera was like moving around. And for a movie made in 1952, it's extremely impressive. The last thing that stood out to me is sort of silly. Just like a big star having a really terrible voice is still like a very funny trope. <laughs> of like course as soon we as she, talk. As soon as she started talking, I was like, classic. That's so good. <laughs> Dude, okay, so... You know what's funny is one that's that, that her performance is hilarious. Like I think her lines are the ones I quote the most. But what's funny is like Gene Hagen has a really nice voice, like a speaking voice. I was hopeful that you were going to be able to answer that question for me. So fun fact: Debbie Reynolds, who plays Kathy, mm-hmm. actually was basically Alina Lamont because like they dubbed her singing. Oh my god! No way. <laughs> um, her singing was dubbed um, in two songs uh, by Betty Noyes. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's N-O-Y-E-S. One of them is whenever Kathy is shown dubbing Lena. And then another one was when I think in, in the last scene. But what's also funny is in the last scene where they're showing Lena lip syncing with Kathy behind the screen. There's another person behind the screen, so to say, uh, dubbing for Debbie Reynolds. And oh, then my God. In the, the dueling cavalier scene that they're showing kind of toward the end. That's actually Gene Hagen's natural speaking voice because they felt that Debbie Reynolds like Midwestern accent was quote unquote inferior to Hagen's natural speaking voice. Dang. Wow. That's so fun. I had no idea. It's it's too bad because I feel like this movie, this is Gene Hagen's probably most iconic role and she had a good career, but uh, it, it's funny that all these voice swaps were happening to make the voice swap in the movie happen. Yeah. That's so funny. I'm going to use this opportunity. This is, there's only like six families in Hollywood Corner that I just wanted to remind everybody that Debbie Reynolds is the mother of Carrie Fisher, who is the mother of 
Billy Lord, all beautiful actresses. And if you click like on their Wikipedia pages, all their wiki photos, they look exactly alike. <laughs> it becomes very <laughs> obvious. They are definitely related. And it's great because they're all hilarious actors. Like, yeah, they're Carrie very Fisher's funny. Comedy. Billy Lord is hilarious. Debbie Reynolds, like the reason she caught people's attention was because she was so charming um, when, when she showed up at like a beauty pageant. And so it's fun to see like that kind of get quote unquote passed down as well. What have you thought about the most since watching? My Singing in the Rain, maybe, is Mary Poppins. I probably saw this movie super, super, super young. I know every word. I love this movie. If I'm not feeling well, I'll put it on. When I like got my COVID booster, <laughs> both times I watched Mary Poppins. Um, and it's very obvious that Dick Van Dyke's dancing seems to be influenced by Gene Kelly. Obviously the tap dancing, but in just like the dramatics of his body and the the way he's doing it, um, even some of the dream sequences. And it also came out, you know, 12 years later. Um, so I feel like Mary Poppins, Singing in the Rain are like both movies you can like show someone who's like one and a half years old and like they're going to love it. Yeah, <laughs> those are some of the texts for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't think I knew what was going on in Mary Poppins until I watched it as like a 15 year old. Because um, I just never thought about it. Uh, yeah. and I was like, wow, that's a lot to do with banking. Well, but mostly no, banking. <laughs> yeah, mostly banking. Um, but no, yeah, Gene Kelly, um, I mean, obviously influential and iconic yeah. and so athletic. That's the thing I think about uh, with him. There's so many clips of him performing great, great numbers. I always think of the It's Always Fair Weather scene where he does a number while roller skating. There's a YouTube video where he does a series on like the ways in which athletics, like like sports, and dancing relate which is kind of fun it's like an after school special situation this movie is definitely comfort food so i can see why it would make you think of mary poppins um, what else have you thought about now that i have seen it it really felt a lot like when i watched casablanca for this podcast is that it is the original text almost of every movie you've ever seen and it's really hard to like wrap your head around it while you're watching it that your favorite movie is influenced by your favorite director's favorite movie is influenced by their favorite director's favorite movie and and back and back and back and it all basically like if it is a musical or a movie about Hollywood it's influenced by Singing in the Rain and like if it's a love story it's influenced by Casablanca and it is like hard to sort of conceptualize watching the like original piece of work and I'm sure Singing in the Rain was influenced by something else. But like this is like the core of so much of Hollywood. And it was just like really big picture. <laughs> it's like hard to get your head around when you're watching it. At least someone this many years later with this many movies under my belt with this much understanding and knowledge of Hollywood and movie history and yada yada and being like a, a student of, I don't know, films, I guess, and having all of that information going back to like what everything kind of comes back down to is is very cool yeah i think that's a good point um and i think it also is a credit to singing in the rain where you know sometimes you watch a like a foundational text and it doesn't hit quite the same or it's yeah. riffed on so much that it takes away from the original you know influence um but i do think this is a movie that holds up so well Maybe it's because of the pacing. Maybe it's because of just the performances. I I'm sure those things have to do with, um, have a big part to do with it. 
I think now having seen it, right, like, and I felt the same way, you know, with some of the movies you've shown me, is that you see the signs in all of it. And and sometimes they're not as blatant as they are in, say, Babylon, but sometimes they're more subtle and you can see them in a movie like La La Land. A lot of Damien yeah. Giselle in this film. There were scenes where I was like, oh, that's when... uh that's when the two of them are tap dancing at the Hollywood Hills. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it's always good to get these under your belt. And I'm glad that you were able to also enjoy it while while doing that. Was there anything else you thought about a lot while watching? Yeah, just like two little things. Um, I've really loved the costuming. This movie has so many pieces of costume. And each one is like extraordinarily artistic and over the top. And it was just really beautiful. And I have also thought a lot about how... Lena Lamont is like a perfect fake Hollywood name. I feel like if you ask like an AI bot to come up with like a 1920s Hollywood name, it would come up with Lena Lamont. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. a good one. That's a, that's a name like George R. R. Martin would be proud of. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> those are the things that have really like stuck with me a lot um, since watching, you know, one of Hollywood's most important films. <laughs> now there's obviously a lot of lore when it comes to films like this but what was the first thing or first things you looked up uh, about the movie yeah like I usually do when you um, have me watch older movies is I wanted to know if I had seen any of the other films that these three had been in and to be completely honest it's not a long list um, I have not seen Donald O'Connor's other films Debbie Reynolds I've only seen Halloween Town movies that's embarrassing um, <laughs> at least I've seen an American in Paris, which is Gene Kelly, um, because I love the stage production and it's so dancey. So of course, like Gene Kelly's in that movie. As we know, I have such a blind spot with like any movie made before like 1970, basically. And I really thought I might have like a few more, but I really didn't. <laughs> but this did like influence me to read more about Donald O'Connor because I was like, oh, I've never seen any of these movies never even heard of any of these movies and he's in Singing in the Rain like how did he kind of get into this position and he comes from like a legacy vaudevillian family which makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense for someone who can like sing dance act flip over dance on plywood like of course he comes from a vaudeville family so that made a lot of sense but it was, just gave me a good excuse I guess to do a little bit more research yeah and hopefully this uh kind of spawns some more uh Gene Kelly watching I've only seen you know maybe five or six of it, movies that he's in, but it's a good time every time. I also love the take that if they make a Gene Kelly movie that Tom Holland should play him. They have a very <laughs> similar body type as I was watching the wow. movie because this is like something gets brought up a lot. If you don't know, um, not only is he, is Tom Holland like an actor, but he grew up on the stage and especially he was in Billy Elliot. So he like very specifically has like a dance background and so people have said if there is ever a Gene Kelly like biopic, basically, that they should tap Tom Holland. And as I was watching Singing in the Rain, I was like, that makes a lot of sense. They have very like similar bodies. Wait, do you know that Tom Holland's playing Fred Astaire in a biopic? Oh, really? Damn. Yeah, that's coming out in the next like year or two. That sucks for the people who ever wanted to make a Gene Kelly movie. <laughs> can't, have, can't have him play both. <laughs> Bro, Godspeed to whoever has to play Gene Kelly. They honestly shouldn't do it. I would hate it, but I would also tune into like a movie about the making of Singing in the Rain just because there's a lot yeah. of drama that like afterward that everybody's like, yeah, we had such a great time. 
it was beautiful. But then like closer to the production of it, it was like, oh, Debbie Reynolds was crying under piano because Gene Kelly was being really hard on her about her dancing. Uh, oh. Just a thing that happened. And then Fred Astaire found her and was like, I'll help you out. Wow. Uh, what else have you looked up? As we usually do, I wanted to look up the Oscars. It is America and Hollywood's probably, you know, what do we say? Number five film. Like it is a classic film and it is not an Oscar winner. Um, it was Gene Hagen, who plays Lena Lamont, was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And Lenny Hayton was nominated for Best Scoring of a Musical Picture. And it lost both of them. I also thought it was funny that it was nominated for Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy at the Golden Globes, as it is film's number one musical. Um, and it lost as well. To a movie I've never heard of uh, called With a Song in My Heart. What won Best Picture that year? The nominees in the 1953 Best Motion Picture are The Quiet Man, Moulin Rouge, Ivanhoe, High Noon, and The Greatest Show on Earth, the Cecil B. DeMille movie. And that is the one that won. Uh, The other thing I wanted to know is how much did it cost to make this movie? Especially when we're just talking about how much the camera moves around and how much like the stage production was a lot and there's so many costumes and the lighting is so good and blah 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 blah. and it was not that expensive actually it was 2.54 million dollars in 1952 money so i did run it through a converter it's about 28.7 million in today's money this is the other babylon thing i was gonna say for comparison babylon cost $100 $100 million to essentially be an ode to a movie that cost $28.7 million. <laughs> they don't, they can't make them like that anymore. Um, uh, Singing in the Rain did make $7.3 million in 1952 money, which is $81.6 million in today's money. So it's pretty good. Wow. A production note I do know is that Gene Kelly for the Singing in the Rain number had mm-hmm. them repave the roads in the studio so the water would puddle up in certain spots so he could tap dance in them. Cool. I love that. He was like apparently very demanding on set, but when you see the product, I mean, damn. Yeah, good for him though. And then the last thing I wanted to know is if they ever brought it to the stage, did Hollywood's most famous musical ever become a stage musical? And yes, but in very short runs, it was more popular in the UK, but it never really like had like a big standing. Um, and it did have his its Broadway debut in the 80s at the Gershwin, which is the home of Wicked, one of my favorite huh. musicals. That's fun. Do you have any other questions about this movie? Yeah. So especially in the first scene where they are at the China Theater in Hollywood and there's like the announcer woman and everyone's like freaking out and all this stuff. It made me wonder if this was supposed to be like a little bit of like a spoof on Hollywood movie making and how like ridiculous the whole thing is, or if it's meant to be like wholesome and serious and like a real look at like the the glamorous life of making a movie. And I couldn't really find a good answer online because that's hard to type into Google. Um, <laughs> it is Singing in the Rain serious? <laughs> It's like not something that's going to get you a lot of reactions. So I was wondering, it's one of your favorite movies. Maybe you had a little bit more perspective. 
this is a movie that uh, is making fun of itself. Um, it makes okay. fun of Hollywood with a with an appreciation, though. Like if yeah. you think about it, this movie comes out in um 1952 and so the sound era has only been going on for 30 years and that means a lot of the people who are in the on the production team for this film also worked in the silent era um there's a lot of different references to the silent era of of, of movies there's cameos by silent era movie stars um That's cool you know the gossip columnist is based on Luella parsons um i can't the the woman who um kind of messes with lena's hair at one point when they're shooting the movie is also uh, an actor from the silent film era whose name I can't remember right now. But there's a bunch of little small references like that that um, today we wouldn't be able to catch because, you know, that's almost 100 years ago. But at the time when people were watching it, it's like, oh, I know what that's from or I know what that's referencing to. So like a person like you and me, if we went to go see Singing in the Rain and we were the same, had the same attitude toward movies that we do now, we'd probably pick up on a lot of these small references that um, are made in the film. Okay, so that is uh, that was my one question. I just wanted to know like a little bit of the tone. It's so intoxicating that it doesn't really matter. But when that like first opening scene, I was like, this seems like a little, a little over the top. And I'm wondering if it is just like of the time or if it's like meant to be that way. So mm-hmm. it sounds like it's meant to be that way. Are there any like comments on the movie that you have left or any questions for me? I want to ask you a couple questions. Um, first of all, um, you know, fuck, Mary, kill, Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, and Debbie Reynolds. Obviously, these are the, the deep questions that we want to hear about Singing in the Rain. Um, I've got to fuck Gene Kelly. That's he fair. seems very athletic, but a little too much for me all the time. Um, <laughs> I have to kill Donald O'Connor because I don't know anything else about him besides this movie. Um, and this is my trio. I have to marry into the Debbie Reynolds family, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> also, that she sense. seems very sweet, and she seems like she would be a good wife. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I think that's very fair. Okay, do you have a favorite song? So, Good Morning, Good Morning, or like, I guess it's just called Good Morning, is like a song I sing in my head almost three times a week. Um, <laughs> anytime I read a text, Good Morning, I think it every time I like, Say good morning to my cat. I think it. I think about that song all the time, despite having never seen it. <laughs> so that is definitely my favorite song from Singing in the Rain. Though, you know, the 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 big three, the the top three are really all just so hard to beat. What's your favorite song? Um, I, I think it's Good Morning, just because that's a fun number as well. I, it's always impressive to me that Debbie Reynolds is hanging with them, dancing wise, because she did not have a dancing background. Um, she was a gymnast, but she, you know, she's out there hanging with Gene Kelly and Donald mm-hmm. O'Connor, which she was very stressed about, understandably. I make him laugh, of course, is going to have that nostalgia pull. I, I do appreciate the Beautiful Girls song. Just it, it's a kind of a vibe where he's like, beautiful girls. Dun, 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 dun. I like I couldn't tell you what the rest of it is, but it's just like, but I mean, I, honestly, I like all of them. The only one I kind of tune out of occasionally is the Broadway melody, but that's also just like. 10 minutes of Gene Kelly cooking. So like, I can't really be mad at it. I think that's like when it really cemented to me how many costumes are in this film. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, holy yeah. shit, what is the budget for this movie? <laughs> what a back-to-back for Gene Kelly, you know? Uh, American I know. Paris. And then, and then Singing in the Rain. I love an American in Paris. 
The opening number is like 26 minutes or something. Psych. It's not that long. It's like, <laughs> it's like 11. But it, for a musical theater number, it's really long. Yeah. Oh, and then two years before, or three years before Singing in the Rain was on The Town, which was also a Stanley Donnan. Man, what a king. That's all I really had for you. Uh, there's not much to add on to this movie. I mean, like, if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's a joy. It's 100 minutes of joy. Um, what a great excuse to go see it is now to listen to our podcast. Exactly. You're welcome, people who that applies to um lastly would you watch this movie again i would um it's very lovely great movie (laughs) ready to go from america in the early 1930s to berlin let's do it let's make it happen Let's let's take a break first This episode of Blind Spotters is not at all sponsored by Coutinho Hot Sauce. Coutinho is a specialty hot sauce company out of Arizona with some of the best flavors I've ever had. Their habanero, jalapeno, and verde flavors are always around with seasonal favorites like strawberry habanero and ghost pepper. My favorite one is the miso one. I put it on pretty much any Asian style meal that I make at home. It just really adds so much more flavor and spice. Coutinho hot sauces, support local and support small businesses. Welcome, bienvenue, welcome. Zach. Tell me about Cabaret. That one was an easy one for me. (laughs) I was going to say that one was really teed up on a plate for you. Um, All right. Cabaret, directed by Bob Fosse, written by Jay Preston Allen, based on the musical of the same name, based on a play, based on a book, but we'll get there. This movie is in 1931 Berlin. British academic and writer Brian Roberts, who is played by Michael York, arrives to Berlin and moves into a boarding house where he meets one Sally Bowles, who is played by Liza Minnelli. She's an American performer at the Kit Kat Club. They quickly strike up a friendship of sorts, and Brian is immersed in Sally's like bohemian lifestyle. Sally flirts with Michael and makes a pass at him until Michael tells her that he isn't really w- interested in women in general. But eventually, when Sally comes back and she's very sad and Michael's comforting her, um, the two start an affair, and they determine that the three women that Michael had been with beforehand were the wrong three women. <laughs> Along the way, he meets Sally's friend, Fritz Vendel, played by Fritz Vepper, and tutors him in English. Amidst the lessons, they become close friends, and Brian and Sally often uh, end up advising Fritz in his ongoing uh, kind of hopeless romance with Natalia Landauer, who is played by Marissa Brinson. Sally and Michael also become friends with a rich baron named Maximilian von Heuen, who is played by Helmut Graham. At first, Brian is skeptical, but Sally is infatuated by this lavish lifestyle um, that he provides for them. And so Max takes the two to his estate where they drink and hang out and dance. And there's definitely some big thruple energy all over the place. And then after a interesting encounter between Max and Brian, uh, Max kind of suddenly drops out of their lives before they go on a planned trip to Africa. After a little bit of a tiff, admit they'd, they'd both slept with Max. Um, Sally, a little bit later, learns that she's pregnant, and Brian offers to marry her, take her back to Cambridge, and kind of start a new life. At first, things seem great as they kind of get ready for the move, but Sally senses some detachment for Brian and um, has this kind of depressing vision about motherhood, so she goes off and has an abortion without telling him. Afterward, when Brian confronts her about it she explains herself and they kind of come to an understanding that this is for the best uh brian 
heads back to England while Sally continues her life in Berlin. Throughout the whole movie, it's interspersed with performances at the club led by the Master of Ceremonies, who was played iconically by Joel Grey, as well as many different references and clips of the rising Nazi regime in Germany. At the end of the film, the camera pans from the Master of Ceremonies and the stage to the audience, and it shows Nazis through this warped glass. How did I do? You did good. There's a lot of names. The names are hard, but (laughs) you did great. It's very German. Especially referring to him as the Master of Ceremonies through the whole thing instead of referring to him as the MC, which is very impressive. (laughs) Oh my God, I just put that together. Yeah, man. Wait, hold on. Is that what MC stands for? Yeah. The whole time? Yeah. Wow. You want to be even more fucked up? MC is spelled E-M-C-E-E. I knew that. But wh- but it stands for Master Ceremonies. Why not just make it <laughs> M-C? <laughs> or M-O-C. It's called the Mach. Um, yeah. You know, Mach 10. It all comes back to Top Gun. Anyway. Um, <laughs> hell yeah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Cabaret. Hell yeah, brother. Basically. Um, okay, so we've talked about Bob Vossi before, and I wanted to sort of, you know, this is one of his original texts. If we're going back to original texts, Liza Minnelli is a superstar, and I wanted you to see her in a film. I'm not sure if you had, so I wanted to make sure that happened. Um, and I love the music of this film. I love the stage production. So I thought it would be a good combination for uh, Musical March. Yeah, I think that was a good shout. Um, yeah, we talked about Fosse a lot in our Chicago pod. For what it's worth, I hadn't seen Liza Minnelli in anything. I hadn't watched, obviously, these musicals. I hadn't watched, like, even Arrested Development, where she shows up in. She's like, so I'd... funny in Arrested Development. <laughs> and I had only seen her recently at a moment that I think you'll talk about later. Oh, I absolutely will. This was actually the first movie that Liza Minnelli got to sing in. Um, so let's get into it. Let's start with what were your first impressions and what stood out to you? Off the rip, it was just the way that this movie showed the performances at the Kit Kat Club. Obviously, I thought of Chicago because it, there is a lot related in terms of the presentation of the film and the numbers. But watching all these performances and all these different musical numbers and even like, you know, the wrestling shot from these angles that really put you in the audience it's really electric and i'll talk about how kind of creepy the 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 vibe is at the kid cat club in a little bit but i i did love there's a way that the camera moves in you know 70s and 80s films that there's still a shakiness to it but there's a real like energy and i think a lot of like different scorsese films or a lot of the films in the french new wave um or bonnie and clyde where it's just very choreographed but also uh, adds to a little bit of chaos and I think that's really fitting for for these numbers even though the camera's cutting a lot I don't think you lose any of the performance or or the energy or even appreciation for like the dancing that's going on um, so I think that's really cool I learned that these scenes were all shot in West Germany uh, and performed in front of people who didn't really understand English but also it was at the same place where they were filming Willy Wonka and before the production got started Fosse would just like sit around and complain a lot because Willy Wonka was uh, running overtime, which I think <laughs> is hilarious. That is very funny. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, another thing that stood out is uh, man, Sally Bowles is like definitely a manic pixie dream girl. She's sort of the the OG. Yeah. I, and I will say, so even though Sally is such like a definitely a manic pixie dream girl, I like that Brian Roberts isn't exactly a square, even though he kind of presents as one at first. 
Um, and when they're walking down the street early in the movie, Sally is really trying to, I guess, impress him with like all these whimsical takes and like, oh, I want to be an actor. Isn't that crazy? And he's kind of like, no, not really. He's he, he, even though he's not as expressive and like extroverted, maybe as Sally uh, and, you know, the performative performer that she is. He's very sure of himself and he's not pretentious. He's very accepting of everything that's going on, but he's also down with it all which I think is a fun dynamic. Yeah, he's definitely not as like bohemian as she is, but is definitely like not judgmental of her. Yeah, like it makes sense that they became friends and lovers like because he was accepting of it all, but also he could still step out of it and tutor English and go back home to Cambridge. And then the other thing that stood out and probably the most prominent thing that stood out is this film's creepiest all get out man yeah the uh stage show is also very creepy and there's been some like modernization adaptations to it that obviously this movie can't benefit from that make them a little less creepy but like the point is supposed to be like it's just like leave your troubles at the door but also like all the riffraff is inside still um as like it is a giant allegory for nazism spreading over germany and so it like lures you in with that sense of leave your troubles at the door but also germany full of nazis so that's yeah yeah it's supposed to be creepy i liked it though yeah i did too um it's kind of felt like an anti-movie musical movie musical because all the performances (laughs) are so contained into the kit kat club um there's only one number that is not inside the club and it probably is the creepiest scene um the one at the beer garden so in the show that number does happen in the club okay that like someone i like that the, they moved it yeah someone in the audience like stands up and starts singing like during intermission and then like all of the audience members start standing up and that's how you realize like the kit kat club is like switching over and then toward the end it becomes kit kat club club with a k tough but yeah, I I had read that Fosse was kind of wanting to move away from musicals at the time. Which is like so wild. <laughs> this is like a, a Tom Brady who wants to become a comedian now. <laughs> it's like Bob Fosse being like, I want to not do musicals. I guess they had made a cut and without any of the the numbers. And it was I think it was a Joel Gray interview, if I remember right. And Fosse didn't, you know, had cut it all out and then they showed it and an exec called Joel Gray. And said, nobody will ever see a version of that movie like that ever again. Um, And then they put the music back into the film. Which I do think adds to the juxtaposition of like, like you said, the the riffraff that's inside. And like, oh, forget all your troubles at the door. And how it transitions with a very like, it's so 70s, the movie. Just Mm -hmm. the way um, it goes into major showing and not telling. There's a lot of after sex scenes. You notice that uh sally is missing her coat like this all these small things that help move the plot along without like the narration per se yeah absolutely this movie is pretty resonant in terms of uh just the political climate and the propaganda and fake news as well which was you know another version of unsettling and um i thought roger ebert put it pretty well as he often does he said quote When the song Cabaret comes at the end, you realize for the first time that it isn't a song of happiness, but desperation. The context makes the difference. And yeah, the context makes the difference even down to the warped window at the end where you see that the Nazis are in the crowd too. 
um, yeah. and also enjoying the show. So what have you thought about most since you finished watching it? It's kind of related to the creepiness of the film. The Kit Kat Club seems like hell. Yeah. It's probably because we were just talking about it in reference to Singing in the Rain, but it gave me major Babylon vibes, um, just the depravity <laughs> of it all. Again, the warped window shots at the beginning and the end. At the beginning, it's like, whoa, uh, this dude is unappealing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I was listening to an interview and Joel Gray had talked about um, he based that performance on there was this like comedian that he had seen like years ago and it was just this guy who was going he was really pandering to the crowd and going for cheap laughs and it was really offensive and it kind of stuck with him and so when he was auditioning for the MC he kind of brought that out and he was like just being crude and like using his stick to like lift the girl's skirts up you know just doing all these things and he felt he let all that grossness out and mm-hmm. the, the people in charge were like that was perfect do that interesting yeah and it really does bring an unnerving unsettling energy and then whenever it shifts at the end and you're back behind the warped window and then you see the the people in the crowd it's like oh there is like that's kind of what movies are right you're you're viewing things through a warped reality and through Mm -hmm. a warped lens um and i thought that that was really fascinating and intriguing i guess yeah I'll talk more about it later when I talk about like the stage productions of it. But like I said, the musical has like adapted a lot over the last few years, like probably over the last like 30, 40 years. And the MC is a lot more like bisexual rather than like asexual. Mm-hmm. And so he's more like over the top, like flirty. And then as the movie or as the show goes on, he gets like drunker and more violent almost and like more clearly into nazism um so it becomes like a little bit more clear like as the show goes on what's going on but i think he's like a little less like creepy than this sort of like disgusting like chameleon guy that joel gray plays him as which is the original way that it was supposed to be played yeah and I think you'll touch on this because we're going to go to Amanda's Theater Corner. Don't you worry. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. But of the the shifts from the play or the from the musical to the movie and then back to the modern interpretations of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of what else I've thought about, can't talk about this movie without talking about Liza Minnelli. First thing I thought of was her eyes walked so Anya Taylor-Joy's could run. And as I was looking her up, I realized, oh, shit, she's Judy Garland's daughter. I had no idea. So I looked that up while like I was like, oh, like Liza Minnelli, what else is she in while the movie was kind of going on? And then realized she was Judy Garland's daughter. And then she immediately sang after that. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. that makes it, sense. It's so good. <laughs> and I saw some kind of arguments when I was researching the movie. Like, is she too good of a singer to play Sally Bowles? Which I think is funny. Oh, interesting. I've never considered that Sally Bowles shouldn't be a great singer. Right. Because she's this like she's trying to be a performer and actor. And it doesn't make sense if she's actually good at it. That's true. I think she has a... Uh raucous lifestyle that hinders her from maybe moving up i mean she jokes about like maybe the alcohol and drugs will get me first haha <laughs> yeah like and then when i was watching it i'm like oh maybe this was like liza minnelli's first thing um no it wasn't she had already won a tony at this point she had gotten nominated for an oscar um uh, for the sterile cuckoo i hope i'm saying that right Mm -hmm. There's even a a clip of her and Gene Kelly. Like she's 13 years old and she's singing a song with Gene Kelly. It's a little bit creepy because they're playing, they're singing a love song together, but it's fine. (laughs) She is 
such a star. She's so important to just like all of performing arts. She's an EGOT winner. She got an Emmy for her variety program, Liza with a Z, in 1973. She has a legend, a Grammy Legend Award in 1990. She got her Best Actress Award for Cabaret in 1972. And then she's won two Tonys and then honor awarded two Tonys, um, both for Best Leading Actress in Flora the Red Menace and The Act. To be an EGOT winner by 1990 is like wildly impressive. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) She's so talented. Apparently she's like very fun to be around too. People just love her. She also has had a lifelong history and battle with alcoholism and drug abuse. She's been in and out of rehab a few times. A lot of people think like she's sort of like made to play the Sally Bowles character because of like part of that in it. When she came out and awarded the Best Picture Oscar last year with Lady Gaga, I was just like so taken aback. Um, There's so many moments in that like two and a half minutes that really catch me. First by them saying, now presenting the nominees for Best Picture, Oscar winners, Lady Gaga and Liza Minnelli. Like, that's so exciting. And and she comes out and um, immediately there's like a 35 second standing ovation for Liza Minnelli. And Gaga like whispers down. She's like, you see that? The public, they love you. And she like struggles like with trying to figure out where they are and and Gaga like grabs her hand you know the the big moment where she grabs her hand says I got you and Liza says I know and it's just like so sweet like two women who are like clearly extraordinarily talented and just are like so adored for being like over the top beautiful talented women and then as Gaga's trying to say something Liza like looks up at her and she's like I'm your biggest fan (laughs) and it's so good it's so sweet and that all leads into like Liza Minnelli just about like with like no fanfare whatsoever just saying that Coda won the best picture which is the movie I wanted to see win anyway so like from like basically the moment they walked out on stage to like the end of the Oscars I was just crying like so like (laughs) so much um I just think that like for her to still mean that much to performance all these years later she hasn't been in anything in a while really just like shows her legacy status and and how just like important she is to film and theater and everything in between that was beautiful thank you i love her yeah i I think that that really leads into the first thing i looked up about the movie which was liza minnelli's career and this is like independent of the fact that she's a icon and like you said like one of the most decorated and iconic performers of her generation but i did read like a little bit after cabaret she kind of started getting typecast in sally bowles like characters just like julie andrews kind of after mary poppins and sound of music by the late 70s people kind of randomly turned on her variety labeled her box office poison in 1978 because she had a trio of flops fools everything i kind of gathered from it kind of came off as similar to the anne hathaway turn that happened after she won her oscar because Liza Minnelli was very earnest and really trying to, you know, do her best. And maybe there's a little bit of like Nepo baby hatred in there as well. But as you can see, the public loves her, as Lady Gaga pointed out. And <laughs> um, she's an EGOT. Like, you know, what else is there to say? So Liza Minnelli, what an icon. What a performance um, in this film. She really, despite all the uh, gray drabness and like 
unnerving horror of the movie is so electric and like her singing is so captivating that uh even though you know her character is probably tragic and there's tragedy coming for her as well you can't help but really just feel invigorated every time she's on screen it's an interesting uh note about julie andrews because she was she auditioned for the original production of cabaret and her agent advised her not to take it because it would be like too risque for like her image these women contain multitudes i wish we got to see it yeah right another thing i looked up was just how this movie was received i knew it was critically lauded you don't get that many oscar noms without it there's some implied sexuality stuff there's you know it, it got an x rating in the uk but in general people love this movie pauline kale who generally doesn't like anything uh, <laughs> really loved cabaret <laughs> hell yeah pauline she kind of took a, a slight dig at the sound of music saying after cabaret it should be a while before performers once again climb hills singing don't pit two queens against each other. <laughs> <laughs> also, two movies against Nazism. True that. But then she also said about the film, uh, it's a great movie musical taking its form from political cabaret. It's a satire of temptations. We see the decadence as garish and sleazy, yet we also see the animal energy in it. Everything seems to become sexualized. The movie does not exploit decadence. Rather, it gives it its due. Which I don't know how, else I could, how, how much better I could kind of describe the barbaricness and beauty that are combined in the Kit Kat Club over there. And then lastly, I was looking up the differences between the movie and the production. And then as someone who in the group project would rather just defer to people who are smarter about things um, than themselves, I'm going to pass it on to you. All I wanted to do was mention again that Fosse didn't want it to be a musical at first. And then uh, the execs were like, nah, my guy, do your thing. And so Joel Gray got to perform and be master of ceremonies, also known as the MC. With that, we'll take it to Amanda's Theater Corner. Thank you so much, Zach. It's so funny that Bob Fosse didn't want it to be a musical because of the success of Cabaret and winning a director Oscar, which I'm sure you'll get to. He's the only person to have ever won an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony in the same year, 1973. The Emmy is also for work with Liza Minnelli in the thing that she won her Emmy for. Um, so that's fun. Okay, so the differences between the musical and the movie is because Bob Fosse didn't want it to become a musical, many of the songs were cut out, including one of my favorites, Don't Tell Mama. Um, if you ever get a chance to look it up, it will be like, oh yes, the movie Chicago. I understand the connection. Like, it's so Chicago. Another one is that Sally is English and Brian, who is actually Cliff, is American. I'm not really sure why they changed Cliff's name, to Brian or why they swapped the English and American. Maybe Liza Minnelli can't do a British accent. And then this is like the biggest one is that Fritz, Natalia and Max don't appear in the musical version. They are not huh. in the stage production at all. Max is sort of like a fill in later character for Sally's like original lover that she has at the beginning of the musical when she first meets Cliff and Max is beating her and is really not good to her and is like really degrading and Cliff is like uplifting and believes in her and all that kind of stuff. So that is like where Max is. I'm not sure like why he became like a rich bisexual later, but like that's fine, I guess. Uh, so that's like where that character is. And then Fritz and Natalia are from the original like book version of it. But they also sort of 
stand for the Fraulein Schneider and Herr Schultz characters, which are cut out of the movie. Fraulein Schneider is like background character basically in the movie, but she is a main character in the musical. And because these two characters were cut out, there are five songs that get cut from the movie that they sing either as solo or duets. And the reason that like Natalia and Fritz are sort of like stand-ins for these two is because Herr Schultz is Jewish and they fall in love and Fraulein Schneider is not Jewish and they like can't fall in love because the rise of Nazism. And that's sort of like what happens with Fritz and Natalia, kind of, sort of. The other major differences between the musical and the movie really have to do with Liza Minnelli, Mine Air, and Maybe This Time were two songs that were made for the movie and for Liza Minnelli to sing them. And they were so good and so lauded that they are now in the musical. And they're like huge parts of the musical. Maybe This Time is like a crux of musical theater and is an extremely powerful moment in the stage production and it's crazy that they didn't exist and they were written for Liza's like very specific alto voice and she was the first one to sing them and they were just like so popular that they later got added into the musical version. I think those are like the main differences between like the musical at that time and the movie that you saw. Nice. That was Amanda's Theater Corner. Jazz hands. And then the other thing I looked up, obviously, is the Oscars nominated for 10. It won eight and lost Best Picture to a little film called The Godfather. (laughs) No, I love The Godfather. (laughs) I know you love The Godfather. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Coincidentally, the two Oscars that did not win were Best Picture and um, Best Adapted Screenplay, both to The Godfather. I do love that Cabaret won cinematography and editing. Um, the cinematographer was That's Jeffrey cool. Unsworth, and film editing is David Brathwaite. But yeah, this movie cleaned up. It set a record for most Oscar wins without winning Best Picture. Fosse won Best Director over Francis Ford Coppola, and the one that really was eye popping to me was Joel Grey won Best Supporting Actor um, cool. over Eddie Albert from the heartbreak kid and then the trio from the godfather james Kahn, robert duvall and al pacino damn yeah i don't know if there's some vote splitting there but like that's really that says something like in a year where uh it's the freaking godfather cabaret cleaned up really cool that's so fun i never think of like cabaret and the godfather being in the same era but that makes yeah a lot of it's wild all right do you have any other questions in general, for me, anything I can answer? Um, a few. Have you ever had eggs with Worcestershire sauce, aka a prairie oyster? I have not. Have you? I have not. Apparently, it's a uh, good hangover cure. No. Um, but you know what? I don't think I'm ever that desperate when I'm hungover. Anyway, do you have a favorite song from this movie? Yes, I do. It's maybe this time. Honestly, this musical has a lot of my favorite songs. Welcome is like, one of my top songs of all time, let alone like all of one of my top favorite musical theater songs. But maybe this time it was my audition song and I've sang it a lot. It is like perfect for an alto voice. It's so good. And the way she sings it is impressive. And then the last song that um, Sally Bull sings, Cabaret, is also a, a classic and a favorite of mine as well. 
I really like those. I really like Mine Air. I literally typed into my notes. I'm like, yo, this is low-key a banger. I don't know why I put low-key in there. It's like, <laughs> no shit, but... Just like the way she's like flicking everything is so fossy. It's so fun. Yeah. I, I think when you think of the two indelible images from this film, it's either Joel Grey as the MC or Liza Minnelli standing on the chair with a hat on. Yeah. And Sally Bowles and MC are two of like the most sought after roles in all of musical theater. That makes sense. I can see why. There's a lot to chew on there. And then my last question is, do you think this movie is a love story? I think it's a story about convenience and indulgence more than I think it's about love. I think that like Sally would have fallen in love with like anyone who was nice to her and lived with her, um, which is fine. And I also think that Maximilian was looking for someone to pay off with his money to love him. And I think that Brian was looking to be loved and none of that is love when it all came down to the way that they did it and that is like very true on like the abortion and how it was handled by both Brian and Sally and of course like Max just like leaving them in the night and they care for each other but selfishly and I don't think that they love each other but sometimes you just need people. I think Brian knows he doesn't love Sally, but I feel like Sally might think she loves Brian. But ultimately, I think this is a friendship movie. Who Among Us hasn't moved into a dorm and just become friends with the person who says that we're friends now. Um, that's hey, not, man. Uh, <laughs> pointed at anyone. I did think about uh, how I, a part of me kind of wanted like an American graffiti style ending to this film, like where you find out what happens to everyone. But as Sally Bowles walks away from the train station, I'm like, bad shit's about to happen to her for sure. Yep. She's looking for the the spotlight all the time, and Brian gave her the spotlight, Max gave her the spotlight, and when they didn't give her the spotlight, she went back to the Kit Kat Club, saying cabaret. That's where she's going to get her spotlight forever is in the cabaret, despite it, the fact that it is a hell zone full of Nazis. Do you have any questions or comments that you'd like to get off before uh, we get out of here? Yeah. The only other thing that I wanted to really talk about is how many people have played these two roles on stage. And because I I did mention that it is one of the most fun and sought after roles in all of musical theater. A lot of like very famous people have played it for a short amount of time. And a lot of very famous people have played it for a long amount of time. So uh, Joel Grey, like I said, was in the original Broadway production in the 1960s playing the MC. He also played the MC again in 1987 in the Broadway revival, um, which was very exciting. At that time, Allison Reed, who is um, a dancer and an actress, played Sally Bowles. Judy Dench has played Sally Bowles. Oh, wow. She played her in the original West End production, um, which is very cool. And then the MC sort of gets its new life. When Alan Cumming comes in, Alan Cumming is one of my favorite actors of all time. I've read his memoir. I will watch pretty much anything that he's in. Like he's amazing. Um, but he played the MC in both the 1993 London revival and the 1998 Broadway revival. The 98 Broadway revival is really where this show gets like a whole new life. And then the 2021 revival in the West End, Eddie Redmayne played him. 
Um, oh. And then these are some actors that have stepped up to play the MC. Michael C. Hall, uh, Raul Esparza, John Stamos, Neil Patrick Harris, and Adam Pascal, who is from the original cast of Rent. A few others as well, but those are like some names I thought you might know. And then for Sally Bowles, Natasha Richardson, who is like a very famous actress and is also part of like a very famous family. She played Sally Bowles in the 98 revival. Michelle Williams played Sally Bowles in the 2014 revival. And Jesse Buckley played her in the 2021 West End revival. Oh, I love that. Uh, all very exciting. Some of the big names that have played Sally Bowles um, from 98 to 04 are Jennifer Jason Lee, who was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Mary McCormick, Sarah Egan, Leah Thompson, Brooke Shields, Molly Ringwald, Debbie Gibson, um, Terry Hatchett, and Vanna White, just among some that you might recognize. Um, and I think that's great. I think that that's so fun that people want to play her. Um, and of course, Emma Stone played her quite famously in 2014 after uh, Michelle Williams stepped down. And to go from Michelle Williams to Emma Stone, all while Alan Cumming is playing the MC, like that's so exciting. And I wish I could have seen it. Um, but alas, I was merely a young sprout in 2014 and did not fly to New York to go see it, which I probably should have. Is there anybody out there that you'd like to see take on either the MC role or the Sally Bowles role? How dare you? <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe would be really good as the MC. Like he yes. has a lot of theater experience. He was also in a different Fosse number. He won a Tony, I believe, or at least the musical won a Tony for how to succeed in business without really trying when he was in it. That would be really fun. I think he like can play a creepy guy who's like also very fun. He could like wear drag and like it wouldn't be weird. Not that it's ever weird, but I think he could pull it off is what I'm kind of saying. Um, that would be really fun. Someone who's like both of stage and screen. All right. Last question is, would you ever watch this movie again? I probably will, but I'm pretty creeped out by it. So it won't be for a little bit. Okay. I'll take it. That feels like a win for me to be completely honest. But some of the songs have been stuck in my head, so I'll probably look it up again. It's so good. Hey, we did it. Great musicals. Great musicals. Um, but we're going to figure out which one is greater. Which one did you like the most out of the two? I think for the movie, I probably liked Singing in the Rain more because the movie of Cabaret does not have a lot of what I love about the show Cabaret, even though it is a very good performance and is hard to beat and is like important. I did rewatch it, finding myself like yearning for other parts that I knew weren't going to come. Um, so I will say the movie I liked the most is Singing in the Rain. That makes sense. I think that's a fair evaluation. Thank you. Two. I also like Singing in the Rain better. I imagine. <laughs> uh, which movie do you think Louie would love more? I think Louie would go fucking batshit for Singing in the Rain. Yeah. I would. think he would love that movie so much he'd see it every day if he could louis would love the end of babylon <laughs> christ <laughs> those he are all... everything leading up to it yeah, yeah yeah he would hate babylon but if he could just watch the the montage he'd be like oh, movies louis dupont de lac also a lover of water and lover of singing in the rain um <laughs> with that 
Let's talk about April. What are we doing in April, Amanda? We're going to space, baby. We're also watching some classics. This is a great start to the year. Zach, you are going to watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a Steven Spielberg classic. And I am going to watch Armageddon, which I'm very excited to see. What do you know about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, if you know anything, Zach? Um, it's Spielberg. It has aliens, I think, and mm-hmm. it takes place on Earth. Correct. All of those are good. Okay. You are right. Thank you. What do you know about Armageddon? Um, there's a lot of famous actors in it. One of them is called Rockhound. And I know this because I used a clip from Armageddon in an episode of Valley 101 I did about rockhounding. Um, <laughs> and it's that's beloved. Funny. Like, that's like another thing I know. It's probably my favorite Michael Bay movie. I don't know how stiff that competition is, but I absolutely love it. I know it's going to be a flawed watch, but I'm so excited for you to watch it. I'm excited to watch it too. It's been on my list for a while. So we have those lined up for April. We're going, you know, astronaut April, if you will. (laughs) But other than that, what is on your watch list? Uh, The motherfucking Oscars ceremony is on my watch list. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Took it home. I hope everyone makes the right decision. Um, That's all I got to say on that. I also noticed that some of the original Bond movies are both on Netflix and HBO. And so I would like to get through some of those. I've loved every Bond movie I've ever seen. So I would like to sort of backtrack and see some of the older ones. And then I'm also watching Taylor Swift perform. When this comes out, it will be this Saturday. I'll be seeing Taylor Swift perform. And I'm very excited. Oh, wow. Yeah. So soon. I'm more excited that you're seeing Haley Williams um, sing with Paramore. I will also be seeing Haley Williams for my second time in 2023, which is also very exciting. Zach, what's on your watch list? So uh, Criterion released a collection of Michelle Yeoh. I think it's called Michelle Yeoh Kicks Ass. Um, so Perfect. I want to watch a bunch of those movies, but um, the number one film I want to watch is Police Story 3. That's the famous Jackie Chan franchise, and Michelle Yeoh joins in the third film. Speaking of trilogy films, I need to see Creed 3 still. Because I went to go see Maggie Rogers and spent some time with some friends in San Diego, I did not have time to go see Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors beat the shit out of each other while looking fucking phenomenal. So I will be doing that in the coming days. And then since you will be listening to this in mid-March, or maybe a little little later, but at least this episode is dropping in mid-March, March Madness. It's time for the uh, men's and women's college basketball tournaments. I cannot wait. I hope all our favorites make it and that glory is had and nobody feels too badly go devs and also <laughs> put me in your bracket contest if you want uh i usually never win so oh that uh, would be fun that. put me in your bracket contest as well i won one year that was fun and then you were never invited back correct yeah go march madness go devs all right guys thank you so much for listening you can always find an episode of Blind Spotters on the second Tuesday of the month or any other fun bonus episodes we throw at you over on our feed. So please subscribe and follow along so that you always know when there's something new coming. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Blind Spotters Pod and on Twitter at Blind Spotters. Zach, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Zach Pocklib and you can also follow me on Letterboxd. Amanda, how about you? You can send me any belated birthday wishes and any compliments at Amanda Luberto across all social media. You're listening to this episode in July. Send Zach a birthday message and also me a belated birthday message. 
thank you guys so much. We are out of here. Bye. Remember, we love you. We love you. We love you. We love you.